This is the Rising Tide Startups Podcast, where we chat with startup founders from all over the globe to help you escape the cubicle and begin your own startup journey. Make sure you take notes. Every episode of Rising Tide Startups is sponsored by Podbrand Media. Let Podbrand create and host your company-branded podcast. Learn more at podbrandmedia.com. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my special guest today is Ben Foster. Ben, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Got me laughing before I hit the big red record <laughs> button, so I am looking forward to this this interview. And and Ben, if you and I met at a networking event, like how would you introduce yourself to me? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I would introduce myself as saying I've been a product guy through and through in my career. And what I love to do now is to help entrepreneurs, CEOs, founders of companies, and sometimes their product leaders that they're working with to really understand what their customer value proposition is and how they can best leverage that to create a very successful business. That's what I, that's what I do. That's what I'm all about. So where are you sitting right now? I am sitting in my office, which is based in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of D.C. Arlington. Well, see, I'm about an hour and a half south of you right now. So I'm in the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> as, as we, as we speak. Right. So, um, All right. Not too far apart. Not too far. So it, it is really good to have you on the show. But uh, I told you that you're going to say things that are going to cause me to ask follow-up questions. But, you know, you you touched on the idea of product management. That That's a fairly recent term that I think that, that, you know, in, in the business vernacular, what, what do you think has been kind of the, the genesis of that? And, you know, as you look back, I mean, when do you think that even came into vogue? Mm. You know, I think that product management in many ways has sort of existed spanning across a bunch of different functions previously. And I think it was really formalized into a specific role during that dot-com yeah, boom that's what I that happened see. in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, I'm talking about, you know, late 1990s. Uh, that's really when it kind of got established. And I was fortunate enough to have graduated from UC Berkeley. And I was in, uh, you know, the Bay Area, really at the right time in the right place. I graduated in 1997. And I felt like I was part of the renaissance, you know, mm. it was like, <laughs> you know, there's so much new stuff new going on. And, and new comp- right. Yeah, you know, and it was just so exciting, you know. Then there was the other end of it on the dot com, right. you know, fail and bust as well. But it was really this this time when companies were trying to figure out a new model because they were going to work in such a different way. You know, th- you had an ability to make billions of dollars in valuation mm-hmm. in a course of a couple of years. And historically, the kinds of companies that would do that were these big manufacturing yep. companies. Yep. It would take them decades to make yep. those kinds of you know strides. And here, you know, you have these Silicon Valley companies with these really weird names and you know things like that that were popping up out of nowhere. And it required, I think, to make that happen the formation of this role of product management, because the CEO couldn't just be the visionary for this idea. And it wasn't just a matter of executing really well Mm -hmm. when it came to production. It was a matter of conceiving of what this new thing could be in this brand new world where all this new technology existed. And so what you really have with product management is the blending of customer needs, business needs, and then the technology that supports that underneath as well. So did Berkeley have a product management degree that I'm being facetious here? So what, what was the, what was your entry point you know, into that, into that <laughs> discipline? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right to be facetious because even 
at this time, as sort of popular as product management has become as such an important and, and crucial role at any kind of like tech startup, there's still no ability at any university that I'm aware of mm -hmm. where you can major in product management. It's kind of amazing that everybody kind of gets into it. Everybody has their story for how they grew into it. I was uh, back in the day, I, I was at Berkeley and I studied statistics. And the ironic thing is, you know, now we live in this era of, you know, AI and, and everybody can totally understand the value of a statistics degree. And it's incredibly valuable for what it's worth to, to be able to think about things that way. But at the time, nobody even knew what I was going to do with something <laughs> like that. You know, was I going to do actuarial science and yep. work, you know, with an insurance brokerage or something <laughs> like that, or, you know, or you could use it for wall street investment type things. Mm -hmm. But at that same time was this revolution of the internet and right. you know the, the amount of data that these companies had available about how their customers were using product and the way that you could use that data to draw insights and then use that to then make a better product for them. Mm -hmm. That was sort of this, this novel kind of revolution. I think it really took place at the time. And so I, you know, right time, right place. I'd love to say that I was a genius and started this all coming, but that would not be true. <laughs> well, you, you haven't had the opportunity to kind of walk through your, your serpentine journey, you know, to these, these places, but there seems to be a, a story that I think I heard on another interview you had done about, you know, you talked about, you know, what goes up must come down. I mean, the, the boom mm -hmm. and the, on the bust side of that. So talk, talk about how you ended up at a, a well-known company in Silicon Valley, you know, on the backside of that and the fortune of being able to kind of land on your feet when so many others were struggling. So walk us through that journey. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, so let's rewind the clock back to that time. You know, it's 1999, 2000. I was working at a company called Webvan that was heralded at the time as being this, you know, really uh, inspired concept of of grocery delivery to your house. And this was back before Amazon was even really a big deal, even distributing books. And so in a lot of ways, it was kind of too far ahead of its time. I mm -hmm. think people weren't really ready to not go to the grocery store and, you know, feel the peach before they put it in their cart and yeah. things like that. But there were a number of ways in which the company was grossly mismanaged and that a lot of money was spent on things that could have been much cheaper, where they could have realized for a much lower cost and a, and a smaller amount of time that this just wasn't going to work or they needed to iterate to get to the mm -hmm. right answer. And that just wasn't a, a belief at the time. You know, the company even legitimately said, you know, we are going to skip the startup stage and go directly to being a big company. And that was one of the worst, you know, it, it, it's like a joke in retrospect. And this is actually taught as a case study in business school about how not to, to do a business, you know? Um, and so that company uh, imploded. <laughs> I joined uh, when it was a billion dollar valuation and we had $300 million in the bank. And less than 12 months later, we were bankrupt and zero valuation. It's just an amazing you know, is that, journey. Is that uh, the to, worst to burn rate in the history of the world? You know, yeah, I it... think the, the two the two classics from that era were uh, were Webvan and Pets.com. They're kind of like classics, you know, back back in, in the wow. day. And, but anyway, there, there was one company that was doing remarkably well at that time. And that was eBay, and uh, you know, especially at the time that people were starting to lose some of their their jobs and things like that. But people were coming more online mm -hmm. at the same time. You had all these people who were collectors of things, and they wanted to buy things online, and they wanted to find these obscure items that they couldn't really get from a typical store. And eBay had this explosive growth. 
during that period. Uh, and so I joined eBay. Um, I was very fortunate to kind of get in at the right time. It was an amazing crew of people that were there at that time. And I really learned product management from one of the people who, who's, you know, uh, well known in, in today as being one of the one of the great kind of like founders of product management, whose name is Marty Kagan. And I was on his team when he was hiring. And I was part of this initial group of 12 product managers. And four years later, when I left eBay, there were 120 product managers. So hmm. that's the kind of explosive growth that that company felt during that window. But I feel like I really learned the fundamentals of what good product management looked like. But what was next in my journey, what was really exciting for me to do to do next was to not work at a big company, but to take that to startup land. So talk, walk us through that. So just that's a beautiful segue. You, you teed it up for yourself there. So what's the what is the next logical step when you step out of large corporation into maybe the unknown abyss of startup land? <laughs> you know, I, I think when it, when it comes to being successful with a startup, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're in some sort of other role, there's so much unknown. You know, it's like it's mm -hmm. like you're trying to navigate in this fog. It's part of the fun of it, though, to, right? <laughs> it is part of the fun part of, of the it, draw, it's part of the danger of it, <laughs> right? You know, you don't know is. if you're about to to you know trip on something and fall on a on a rake. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the issue is it's really difficult to navigate. You're constantly making you're constantly having to flex on things that you mm -hmm. thought you had right. You know, hey, we're going to come up with this pricing model. Actually, it turns out nobody wants to buy my product that way. Who knew? Okay, I guess we should switch to this, right? So there's this really tricky thing you have to do where you have to sometimes follow the playbook for success. And sometimes because you're doing something that's new and you're trying to create a, a product that hasn't even existed before, you're also having to ignore the playbook and say, actually, I've got that. I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to do yep. this very intentionally differently. Mm -hmm. Right. And I kind of liken being successful as a startup entrepreneur to the way that, that a great artist is, you know, Picasso didn't draw people with their eyeballs in weird places mm -hmm. and, you know, weird faces and things like that, because he didn't know how to draw people properly, right? right? It's because he knew how to draw people properly. He knew the playbook. He knew the mm -hmm. way that it was supposed to be done right, that he could then go beyond that mm -hmm. to then say, and I'm gonna I'm gonna create a new rule set. I'm gonna break the rules and I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, kind of like establish it over here as well. Uh, a great basketball player, you know, uh, doesn't do these crazy moves, you know, uh, you know, dribbling the ball, doing some reverse dunk or something like that because they don't know how to dribble the way you learn in high school. It's right. because they have those fundamentals down so well that they're capable of going, you know, well beyond that. And I think mm -hmm. I found it to be invaluable for my own career. I had the expertise that came from learning the, the playbook, you know, at a larger company where it, the role had been established. And then to take that show on the road to these startups and say, okay, I know what's supposed to kind of happen here, mm -hmm. but I also see exactly why that wouldn't be appropriate in this particular case. And yeah. here's how we're going to do it differently in this company. And here's why we're going to differently in this company. But at least you know that you're doing it differently intentionally, as opposed to I'm just completely making this stuff up as I go. So big difference between the two. And that's a lot of times why I encourage people who are in these kinds of roles to work with someone who has that kind of experience. You know, if you're doing mm -hmm. this for the first time, maybe you've got the right understanding of the market and the customer that you're going after and the problem you're trying to solve. But do you also have the ability to tap into the experience mm -hmm. of somebody who's maybe worked in a different kind of like, you know, space, but does have that kind of rule book. And by working together and having this collision of ideas, you can come up with both what is the sort of standard way of doing something that might be applicable at your company, but also to realize how you can go beyond that to be the most successful you can be as an entrepreneur. I, I've been doing this for five and a half years and heading into the sixth year. And I think this is 
this is one of those those rare times where the guest says something that is so crystal clear to me that I have like a mid interview epiphany. So I, I'm a sports nut. I love sports. Yeah, I got I got to know what the epiphany is. <laughs> so when you were talking about you know following the playbook and and then you're thinking until it doesn't you know it doesn't fit and whatever then you kind of abandon that. I it was I was likened to so football. I, I love pro football. So pro football has some fundamental things that that every coach could agree on that says, you know, you blocking, tackling, you know, how to catch a football, those types of things that are, that's kind of the basic manual, the basic playbook or whatever. But then you have these, these young guns that come in like the, you know, the, the coach at the Rams and the coach of the Packers and the coach of the 49ers who take that basic playbook and they are, they're not abandoning it. They're adding to it. They're, they are building like another element on the side of that. And it's not just because it's cool. It's because the defense has shifted and they're finding, having to find a new way to address the problem. And it is, it is so, I've never drawn that parallel before. You know, you hear it, you know, use the playbook and, and you know, mm-hmm. your business playbook or whatever, but the way you describe that, which is, they just painted such a vivid picture in my mind, you know, you're not going to have to write a book about this, maybe. <laughs> about the, Sounds good. We'll, we'll jump the, on that right afterwards. You know, <laughs> but I did hear it in another interview you talked about, you know, you don't write a book to make money. <laughs> so <laughs> No, you do not. Job. That is not what you're getting into it for. So, yeah. But it was, yeah, I don't want to take all the time just, you know, chasing this rabbit, but it was no, so I, I, I love it. interesting how, you know, the, as you were talking, just this image that came to mind about, you know, these younger coaches, they, they, they don't abandon it. They adapt it. And because yeah. it's, it's very, I think it's very uh, parallel to product management that says, you know, when you're looking at product market fit, when you're looking at how to market a, a product, how, you know, what are the, the guidelines that are the, the milestones that have to be built to, to launch something? I mean, it's, it is so clear that there is a basic roadmap, but You've got to adapt it. The defense is yeah. going to throw you some curves. The market's mm-hmm. going to shift. You know, you've got to you've got to be able to be res- responsive to changes to yeah. you know catalysts that that are introduced to the new catalysts that are introduced to the market. So, anyway, yeah. I, I hey, I just wanted to, that. That's my way of saying thank you. That's great. For that All right. new <laughs> that's great. You know. I, it is it is really interesting this this dichotomy that you have of on the one hand you want to do the things that are tried and true that are known to work that you know that the people have been figuring out for hundreds of years and piggyback on top of that but on the other hand you have this need to be creative and novel in some way now i think in the world of sometimes let, let's take like brick and mortar stores mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. You know, sometimes you can do something that's different and novel, but a lot of times there's space for multiple companies to be successful because they have their different territories, they yep. have their different, you know, streets mm-hmm. that they're on. One is looking for foot traffic and the other one's looking, you know. So you've got this sort of ability for there to be a variety of different winners in the space. And I think one of the things that's really forced this need to be creative and think about what's going to be really differentiated versus everything else that's out there is in the world of tech and the world of internet-based mm-hmm. software and mm-hmm. things like that. 
you're all competing with one another. Right. I don't care where that company is based. They could be based mm -hmm. halfway across the globe. And, I and can they don't care where you're based. That's like right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And so, so you've had this like, shrinking of the world where, mm -hmm. where everybody has access to everything. And what that means is you're not going to have 10,000 different winners and 10,000 mm -hmm. different losers. You're going to have, you know, 19,998 losers and mm -hmm. two winners. Yeah. And that's what it's going to look like, right? I yeah. mean, how many, you know, attempts at, at different technologies are going to be, you know, in terms of Uber and Lyft, how many different attempts will there be in terms of DoorDash and the other, you know, food delivery companies, et cetera, right? But eventually you get to a place where either there's this kind of race to the bottom that happens where their margins get so thin because they're competing against each other that it's really difficult or you find where there's just one clear winner the way that amazon really took over mm -hmm. when it came to you know retail etc so um because they all have to compete with one another it forces you to say okay how is my product how's my offering going to be differentiated versus everybody else and it's not just a matter of making sure that it's better because it has the better features i mean there's tons of examples out there of the the quote unquote better product Mm -hmm. that should have won yep. but didn't win anyway and it's because yep. the go-to-market plan you know the the product positioning etc mm -hmm. was better for some other product that was out there even if it was lesser in, in many ways because it had the right way of finding that fit with the target market and was more directly attached to the customer problem as the customers themselves would have articulated it and, and as you mentioned earlier, I mean, maybe timing was just bad. I mean, it could have been a great product yeah. and you have the market, but it's just like that they weren't ready. They were not educated. Yeah. They weren't, you know, it wasn't that, that like eBay introduced 10 years earlier may not have had the same success that it did, you know, post post.com bust, but it's it, what, exactly a, right. what a great uh, first part of our interview here. We just talked about just kind of the gen generic a science, uh, you know, around product management and about how it impacts business as a whole on the, on the macro sense. But right after our break, our sponsor break here, I want you to kind of drill down a little bit more on the micro side of things and say, how does this affect those that are, you know, in the small business space or that are trying to launch something or so, but right after a word from our sponsors. And now here's a quick word from one of our new sponsors on Rising Tide Startups. Have you been wanting to start a podcast, but not sure where to start? Well, now you can start a podcast in less than 24 hours. I'm David Ezel, and I'll walk you through all of the things that you need to get started today. Things like how to choose the right microphone, how to edit your audio, and how to find guests and build a pipeline of future guests. This course does a great job of keeping things high level while also diving into the things that keep most people from starting. Even better, if you use the code RISING at checkout, you'll get 20% off your purchase. But that's only if you use the code RISING at checkout. What are you waiting for? Start your podcast today. We are back. Thanks again, Ben, for uh, chatting with us today on Rising Tide Startups. And we, we said after the break, we were going to drill down a little bit more on the micro side of things. So let's, let's uh, I just want to kind of just leave the space open for you. If you're speaking to our audience that are, you know, that are that are trying to create something, that have a small business, that have a, an online business, especially, or wanting to start one, kind of walk us through the things that you've learned that you think are applicable to them. Yeah, you know, we we talked in the first half here about the theory. I think you know mm -hmm. of what product is about and how to think about these things as an entrepreneur and, and some of the history. Let me jump now into some pragmatic, specific recommendations that I that I would advise for any kind of like you know uh, early stage founder, uh, whether that's a tech based company or not. You know, mm -hmm. to be totally honest, I think that it's really important 
that you separate those things for your own sake, as well as for anybody else that you're working with, whether that's a co-founder or employees that you have on your team, you separate what are those things that you're holding fast, that you're holding true to no matter what, and what are those things that you're completely willing to change if you need to in order to make those other things work. So I'll give you a couple examples, right? You know, your product vision should include things like what's your target market? Who's your target customer? What's the problem that you're trying to solve for them? How would they describe that problem? Mm -hmm. What are the key elements of your solution that you're going to sort of, you know, have that that's going to be differentiated within the space that's going to make it better than the other products that are out there, right? Those things should probably be really, really clear. And I don't think that you really want to budge on those unless you're actively making it a, a complete pivot about what your mm -hmm. company is about. So those are things that are, that are part of the vision that should be really stable. Now, what's your pricing strategy around that? What's the best design to get somebody to sign up to subscribe to your product? What's the best name of the button? What's the right kind of, you know, branding for this? What's the right marketing message? All of those are sort of like the means for how you achieve what you just sort of like talked about, mm -hmm. right? And the more you can be crystal clear about what the distinguishing characteristics of those things are or which things fall into which categories, then the more the team that you're working with or even you yourself well, as an entrepreneur, understand these are the things that I need to find a way to make happen. And these are the levers that I have. These are the changes that I can make. These are the dials and the knobs that are sort of like available for me to fine tune as I try to get to that magic place of product market fit, where our customers are clearly getting so much value from our product that I'm not worried anymore about whether I can extract the business value and mm -hmm. the revenue and things like that that I'm looking for, because they find it to be so valuable that they're clearly willing to pay and I'm getting more and more customers finding me because they're finding it to be exactly the right kind of thing that suits their needs. So, you know, that separation is is really important. And I think a lot of people kind of skip over that step. It's like, oh, kind of just take it for granted. But I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone into a first advisory session with a CEO, you know, a, a, a you know, founder of a 12 person company, something like that. And I asked them to reveal their vision and their strategy to me. And they go to the whiteboard and they're really excited about it. They, you know, they, they describe the whole thing to me. And then I, I say, this is fantastic. I love it. You know, it's great. And then I go talk to somebody else on the team. I ask them the same question and either I get a blank stare, they yeah. don't know, or they tell me something that's in their head, but is not the same thing that the CEO is saying. And it's just, in, it, it's just so incredibly painful when there's a disconnect about those things, because mm -hmm. then what's going to happen is somebody else has a different interpretation, right? Yep. They change something that was supposed to be stable, right? They're like, actually, we're going to go to this target market instead of that one. And the marketing team decides that that's what they want to do. Well, in the meanwhile, the engineers are working on building something for the existing target market. While, you know, in the meantime, sales is making promises that neither party is planning on keeping. And that's how these companies kind of find themselves really floundering at a later stage because they didn't get that part right in those initial stages. I think it might scare you how often that happens at large companies, you know, um, yeah, or probably I, I, I can, I can, yeah, by 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 personal experience i can i can say that that has certainly been the case from time to time but when you when you're talking about like non-negotiables are you talking about is it culture is it product features is it strategic direction and vision uh, mm -hmm. or is it all the above well i think I, I would classify the vision and the strategy as being non-negotiables mm -hmm. Uh, at least at the moment, right? So, so maybe maybe there's even three categories. I would say 
it's really important that you have your vision clearly articulated mm -hmm. and that you clarify to the rest of the company. This is why it's a vision, right? This is where we're headed, right? Straight up. We're not changing where we're headed. That, that's where we're going. And, and one way or another, we're going to find a way of getting there. Okay. That's kind of what defines a vision in a lot of ways. The strategy is kind of somewhere in the middle, right? Where it's something that I want to be clear and I want everybody to be aligned against. I want to make sure that everyone's working towards the same thing. If we're going to expand our target market to include those folks over there, then I want marketing to act with that. I want product to act with that. I want sales to act with that. I want customer support to act in that way. You know, you name it. I want everybody to be kind of aligned against this. But the strategy is still in service of the vision. And if you mm -hmm. realize at some point that the strategy is no longer the right strategy because maybe some huge competitor comes along or Google decides to launch, you know, something that replicates your product, well, maybe that's that's a thing you shouldn't be ignoring. And that might have an effect on your strategy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it'll be a positive effect. Sometimes it'll be a negative. I mean, we all just went through COVID in 2020, right? Yep. That's a yep. major change that you everybody had to go at the same <laughs> moment and, 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 and look at their strategy, right? And yep. the companies that made those shifts, like Toast, they did remarkably well. Mm -hmm. They could have been, you know, they, they lost 90% of their revenue in a single month. No pun intended. They um, could have been Toast. <laughs> <laughs> they could have been Toast. <laughs> exactly. You got it. And, uh, and they... But they found a way to, to pivot. They changed their strategy. They didn't change their their vision. Mm -hmm. They still wanted to be the right tool set for restaurants to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. But what that meant and the features that were embedded in that were, were going to be something that was going to be very different. So they had to make those those pivots strategically, but not necessarily in terms of their vision. And then I think you have those things that are completely negotiable, where it isn't a matter of hey, I want everybody to be aligned. Here's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I want you to be experimental. I don't want you to do, yeah. do the thing because this is the way we've been doing it. I want you to try completely different options. I want you to launch this feature, that feature. I want you to uh, change the marketing message and see which one happens to get the better click-through rates. You know, you name mm -hmm. it. I'm not tied to any of those things. Whatever proves to work, that's what we're going with. So those are maybe the three buckets. Vision is that part that you're just like absolutely stable on unless you're making a hard pivot for the company, almost like killing your company and reestablishing it mm -hmm. You know, with the same people. The strategy is that part that you want everybody to be aligned on. Everybody's on the same page and it's stable until you decide to actively change it, but it may be a thing that you need to change. And then everything else is intentionally unstable. It's intentionally something that you're going to be flexible on because you want to give the people on your team the space and the availability to kind of figure out how to best make things, you know, you know, improve from where they are today. Mm -hmm. I, I am uh, I'm curious, just you personally. So are you a build it and they will come guy? Are you a, uh, you know, I got to find a group of people standing there wanting hamburgers and, and drive a food truck into the crowd. So what's the, or is it somewhere in between? You know, for me, it's, you could say it's in between, or you could say it's both at the same time. You know, I, I think that there's, there's so many examples of very successful products that if you just relied purely on you know asking people what they want at the mm -hmm. moment that you never would have built the product i mean nobody said they wanted a car when there were horses you know mm -hmm. nobody said um that they wanted a pringles size can on their kitchen counter before you know the amazon alexa echo came out right <clears throat> there's so many examples of these things that have worked out really well because they were creative in some way that was going beyond what customer expectations or desires would have been mm -hmm. right even ai tools i mean you know 
I never, you know, if somebody had interviewed me about using Google to answer my questions, I would have said, hey, well, I would have improved the search in this one particular way, et cetera. Then ChatGPT comes along mm -hmm. and it's this completely different interface that is, you know, not pointing me to web pages, but it's just directly answering my questions. I wouldn't have even thought to say that that's a thing that I wanted as a consumer. Right. So if they do that's all the kind point. of customer interviews, you're going to be limited by the level of creativity that your would be cars have mm -hmm. on their own. Now, you know, that's it's, it's still helpful to understand that you have to sell to a market and that market is comprised of specific individuals, specific companies, specific people, et cetera. So you do need to kind of like, you know, ver verify that what you're going to be building is going to work for them. Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't. I guess the way to put it is don't outsource your creativity to your customers. Don't outsource your innovation to your customers, but do make sure that what you're actually working on innovating on is something that actually matters to them, right? Because there's a countless number of companies also that fail because they build some sort of amazing, cool technology that, like we said before, is either ahead of its time or maybe is something that is, is just, it doesn't have a space in people's heads. It's not a category that they care about. And so it's it's really uh, this challenge to kind of get the best of both of those worlds where you're both relying on yourself to innovate, but you're also depending on your customers to validate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's a, that's a great distinction, but between those two for sure. I, I um, it's and when you were talking about that idea, they didn't know they wanted a car when they were you know riding horses and in there. God, didn't Henry Ford kind of kind of say that? I mean, that, that, that he said, you didn't know you wanted a car until I showed you what a car was, you know, or yeah, uh, Steve Jobs says, you didn't know you wanted a computer in your home until we we made one yeah. available for you type thing. But um, yeah. and, and ask uh, HP or or, uh, you know, did or yeah, I guess is there is there a way that, you know, you could you could kind of forecast or or have that vision you know to see it before it actually appeared but it's a science it is you know a little bit of luck it's a little bit of you know it's, it, product management is such a broad broad field and it's not just for product managers i mean it really is a a discipline even for business owners you know to oh, absolutely to have to especially you know even the solo brands as you're building your solo brand what does it look like to to kind of manage the product or service you're trying to you create it's not manage it like you know I, i'm making sure you show up on time it's managing the process and the launch and the maintenance and the you know all the channels yeah. around that so it is it is it's been such a such a great chat today just to hear you kind of lay out you know just from a macro and micro sense but as we're wrapping up today what what have i not asked you about that you think would really be helpful to our audience to wrap us up with today and then just tell people where the best place maybe to find out about you and and i think you've actually got a book out as well that if, i'd love for you mm -hmm. to mention yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy, happy to cover all those things. In terms of uh, one big takeaway, I would say uh, that the biggest thing that you can do that I think a lot of people fail to do is to get in the mindset of your customer really, really well before you get in the mindset of your own business. So, hmm. for example, I'll talk to a lot of founders or entrepreneurs, CEOs, et cetera, and I say, you know, tell me about what your vision is for, for your product and what it is that that that's going to really do. And I say, oh yeah, I've got a great vision for this. You know, we're, we're going to be at $10 million of annual recurring revenue by X date. I'm like that, that's 
garbage. <laughs> no, <laughs> the, the problem with that is that you're, or, or, or they'll say things like, we're going to revolutionize this space. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what I tell people is, here's the thing. You never revolutionize an industry directly. The way you revolutionize an industry is you solve a customer problem so well and in such a better way that you shift customers' expectations forever mm-hmm. such that all of your competitors are now right. left behind, right? Wow. And, you know, you've got your name of your podcast is Rising Tide Startups. And I think that in a lot of ways, what, what you do is you rise. It's a rising tide. It's a rising set of expectations mm-hmm. that you create for your customers because you elevate what their expectations should have always been, mm-hmm. right? That's what real innovation is. And so it's just an example of making sure that you understand why your customers would want a, a solution like this, that you understand how they would measure success in using your product, right? So it's not just a matter of you're trying to make a buck and then sub, sort of like secondarily, let's go figure out what kind of customer value I can create in order to mm-hmm. go make that buck. You've got to invert that and you stay, what is the problem that's out there that's so pronounced, that's so meaningful that people will stop using their existing solution, switch over to mine, that they'll want to use my product, that they're going to talk about it with their friends at parties, you know, et cetera. That's the kind of thing that I want to create. And if you nail that, if you do that really, really well, then your own business success will kind of like come along the way at the same time. Like you don't have to worry about that part because you'll be delivering so much value that you'll then have the opportunity to then charge for it, et cetera. And now suddenly you're going to be the mm-hmm. profitable company. So there's way too much emphasis that, that happens. Be- and that's p- partly because those metrics are a little bit more easily measured, those internal metrics. Right. What's my customer retention and how many customers did I acquire last month and things like that. You, great. That's your own success that you're measuring. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it gets left behind as a customer. And I would, I would encourage everybody to say, why would a customer choose to renew with me? What what would what metrics would they look at to make that decision? Well, those are the metrics that I should be measuring because mm-hmm. if I'm not driving those things forward, then over time my products can get worse. And just like I can be working hard to try to like improve what my customers' expectations are going to be, keep in mind that all of your competitors are constantly innovating and making your customers' expectations higher and higher and higher. So if you're not continuing to innovate, then that means that your product is actually getting worse over time as judged by the expectations of your customers. So right. you got to get in wow. that mindset. I think that that's kind of, you know, something that's what really important. I would encourage up, yeah. any founder, whether it's tech or, or anything to always have that orientation and always start mm. there. In terms of where to find more information uh, about me or, or to connect with me, I, look, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to find, you know, just uh, my handle is Ben Foster. So find me there. Uh, I'd love to connect with you and, and, you know, tell me that you listen to the podcast. Uh, you know, it's, it's great to know what kind of um, thing, you know, brought us together in the first place. So that's one. Uh, you can come to the website for the boutique advisory practice that I created, which is really all about sharing some of these best practices, templates, documents, and very practical kind of like approaches to solve these problems. And that website is prodify.group. That's P-R-O-D-I-F-Y dot group. There's a lot of free resources and available information there. And if you want to connect with me or any of the other people who work in that boutique firm, um, we would love to get a chance to speak with you as well. Um, last thing you asked me to mention was the book as well. So yeah, we wrote a book that kind of pulls a lot of these ideas together and that book is called build what matters. So check that out. It's available on Amazon. You can either get that on Kindle or you can get that in either a hard copy or a paperback version as well. Well, Ben, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the, uh, props you gave us about, about the name of the podcast here, because you've certainly done, done your part to, uh, help all boats rise in a rising tide. Ben, thanks again for joining us. Have a great weekend. 
Sounds great. You too. I hope you heard some great takeaways from our guests today. Make sure you reach out to them and thank you again for playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide.